acceptable. You know, forget those guys. Then he could be labeled as a dangerous political. Jesus sees right through this. Matthew says he sees their evil intent and he exposes their hypocrisy. He does it, he does it in this way. He asks them to produce the coin that was used to pay for the tax. And in asking for this, he, he's accomplishing two things. The first is this. They have one of the coins. Which, by having one of the coins, demonstrates that at some level, they're already complicit in this arrangement with the Roman Empire. They've already answered the question for themselves in some way. So when Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, it's this sort of non-answer that's meant to raise some pretty serious questions. Hey, maybe we're the ones who are compromised. Are we just playing games here? Are we talking out of one side of our mouth, praising God, speaking of God over here, but then keeping Caesar happy over here? Now, at the heart of this scene, it's not even really a question about their engagement with the empire. This is a question about worship. And this is the second thing that Jesus does by having them produce this coin. He asks whose image is on this coin. This was a loaded statement for a Jewish rabbi to make. And it would have been a callback to those 613 commandments and laws in the Old Testament. Exodus 20, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 5, all of them speak about uh, not uh, making, holding, worshiping graven images. The prophet Habakkuk says, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Now on these coins, there was a picture of Caesar, and there was this inscription that said, Son of God. Do you see how problematic this is? walking around, portable idols in their pockets. Principle four, the kingdom of heaven is over and against, but not removed or separate from the kingdoms of this world, at least until Jesus returns. Over and against, but not removed or separate from the kingdoms of this world. This theme and this principle deserves a longer look. So we're going to um, get the whiteboard out here for a second. Dr. Tim Keller has written extensively about this. He says, the fragmentation within the church today looks on the surface like a diverse array of doctrinal disputes. But more often than not, lurking beneath those issues, the thing behind the thing, is this question of how Christians should relate to the culture around us. How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and kingdoms of this world? How do we live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of the United States of America? This has always been a fundamental question for God's people. In Jesus' time, there were about a thousand years of Jewish history that had been built up, but their culture was also deeply influenced by the Roman occupation, by the Greek occupation that had come before that, by their exile to Babylon, and a variety of Arabic neighbors that they shared borders with. It was multicultural. It was pluralistic even in the first century. This is the issue for us as well. 
America has uh, these sort of loosely Judeo-Christian roots, but this is a globalized, pluralistic, secular, cultural moment that we find ourselves in. How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the kingdoms of this world? Now, what I'm going to do here for a moment is just uh, uh, summarize, uh, over-summarize, my apologies to Tim Keller, some of his work and, and thinking on this subject. So if you want to know more, I, I would recommend his book, Center Church. I would also just warn you that it is a very thick book. So you've been warned. All right. He says that there are basically four uh, four ways in which we respond to and interact with culture, four ways we try to answer this question about being citizens of the kingdom of heaven but living in kingdoms of this world. And he says that these four responses are born out of two essential postures. So the first posture is this. What do we think about culture itself? Do we think that it is uh, totally unredeemable or do we see within it pockets and examples of God's grace. So there are some people who would say there's lots of examples of God's grace emerging within the culture. And then there are others who would say, no, there's, there really isn't any. So we'll just say a little grace down here. All right? The second posture has to do with our engagement with culture. Do we believe that we can actually have an impact and change things? Some people would say, no. So we have this very passive approach to culture. Others would say, no, we need to be involved in the game, so to speak, and so there's a more active posture. All right? So here we have these very, uh, this very simple two-by-two two chart of these different ways in which people throughout church history have thought about engaging with, uh, engaging with culture. So here, let me give you some, some uh, definitions. In the bottom left-hand corner is what we might call alternatives. These are folks who would say there's very little, if any, goodness within the culture itself. It's all corrupted by the empire and other powers and principalities. So, and then also there's very little hope for us to actually change anything. So we create this alternative sort of society. All right? In this quadrant we have reformers who would say, you know what, it's all, it's pretty bleak, it's looking pretty bad, most of it is not good, but we need to change it. And so we're going to protest, we're going to fight, we're going to start an organization and a movement to try to change things in our world. Up here we have what is called relevance, which would say, look, there's all these great examples of, of God's grace within the culture. You go to a movie and you see it, you read a book and you see it, you, you're, you're watching TV and you see these examples, and then also... There is this call on us to make stuff and to change things, and so we take this very active approach to engaging with culture. And then the last part here is what we might call excellence. Again, lots of examples or, or uh, places where we can experience God's grace, but we have very little opportunity to change or influence things. So the best thing that we can do is just be good at whatever it is that God has called us to do. If you're a doctor, be an excellent doctor. If you're a teacher, be an excellent teacher, and let the work speak for itself. All right, so those are four different examples of ways that people tend to engage as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven within the kingdom of the world. Now, within each of these, there is, I think, a gift and a danger. All right, and there'll be a chart up here on the screen that should talk about this. But for alternatives, the gift is distinction. We are different. 
We are called to be salt and light, but the danger is that you can become so withdrawn from the world around you that there is no difference being made. This is when Jesus talks about like putting your light under a, a, a basket, right? That is the danger of alternatives. Relevance, <clears throat> the gift is missional creativity. All of these great ways in which the gospel is being shared uh, and, and creatively communicated uh, in the world. But then the danger is that we begin to look exactly like the culture. This is called syncretism. Reformers, this great gift of activism, but the danger there is, is antagonism or anger, the sort of us versus them mentality. And then in the excellence category, the gift is, again, vocation, this idea of calling. God has called me to do this good work. But the danger is this pietism, being so removed that we never speak into the dysfunction that we see in our world. All right, now, Keller's argument in the book, this is where the idea of center church comes from, is that there's kind of a blended insight. He argues that we should take the gifts of each of these approaches and do our best to avoid the dangers. Now, why do I share all of this with you? I do this to, to say when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's, he's not giving us an answer. He's inviting us to orthokresis. We have to discern what is the best response on a particular issue, uh, what is the best posture for us as an individual or as a community in this moment in our context. We have to ask the question, what is loving? What looks like love of God and love of neighbor? And then to get into our final theme, what approach grounds us in the bigger story? The final piece of the showdown involves this very strange scenario concocted by the Sadducees. Again, another subset of Jewish leadership about marriage and heaven. And the key thing to know here, Matthew says, is that the Sadducees did not believe that there was going to be a resurrection. And it's here where there is such tremendous confusion on the bigger story that Jesus gives his most clear and direct answer. He says, you are an heir. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. About the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Principle number five, the best stories are resurrection stories. We worship the God of the living, the God who has defeated death, the God who has overcome our sin through his resurrection. And this is really good news for us right now and also our hope for the future because this is how the story ends. With resurrection, life overcoming death. And so again, we discern by asking, what is loving? What brings life? What looks like death being transformed by resurrection? Now, there are probably a million different ways to apply these themes and these principles. I want to close by talking about coffee, though, for a minute, okay? First, Jesus says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's that phrase, all nations, again. This is one of the most consequential things that Jesus says in the entire book of Matthew. This statement has been a, a driver of the global missions movement for hundreds of years, but 
fascinating thing. In the last five to ten years, there have been, uh, there's been this massive migration of people around the world. There are more people on the move right now than at any time in human history. And what that means is that sharing the good news of the kingdom with the whole world to all nations no longer requires us to go. Now, some of us are going to go, and that's great, and we should celebrate that when God calls someone to go. But the nations are coming here. And I wonder if the desire to keep people out or send people back is not working against God's purposes for this moment in history. I don't know for sure, but what I do know is that we have to ask the question, is it loving and does it look like resurrection? We've been serving coffee from 1951 Coffee Company here at Discovery since about January. And I've told their story a little bit before, but just as a reminder, what 1951 does is ask those questions. What is loving? What looks like resurrection? And the answer for them has been job training. As they've gotten to know and work with uh, refugees and resettled people in the Bay Area in particular, they've started this program to train people in barista skills, and they work really hard to help them uh, get jobs in the coffee industry. And, and one of the cool parts about their program also is that this training produces deep, significant relationships that last well beyond their time with 1951. Through the program, I got to know this guy named Meg. This is a picture of him and his family. Um, got to know his story of escaping persecution in Nepal and living in a refugee camp for several years. Finally getting resettled in Oakland and then his, his uh, journey to not just get a job that would pay the bills, but this guy has become a competition-level barista. He, he uh, trains uh, and manages shops and is a huge advocate for the refugee community around the world. This is a resurrection story. 1951 did not set out to like change the world or, or, or start some big dramatic thing. They simply built relationships, discovered a need, and asked the questions, what is loving and what does resurrection look like? The answer, job training, not super glamorous. But it's what they've been doing. It continues to grow and expand, and it's a beautiful story, and it's, it's fun for us in a very small way to partner with what they are doing. Now, here's what I want to be really clear on. The goal here is not for all of us to go out and start a nonprofit organization, all right? The call for us this morning is to ask these questions. What does it look like to love? What does it look like to love God and to love our neighbors? What does resurrection look like in the relationships that we have, in the, the networks that we are a part of, in our work, in our families? As you wrestle through those questions, may you remember you are a whole being, heart, soul, and mind. And the greatest thing that you can do with that heart, soul, and mind is to love. To love God and to love people. Or as the writer Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's pray. Father, this um, conversation today loaded with 
with content, and sometimes it can be easy to get lost beneath that. But we begin our response this morning by confessing all the different ways in which we are complicit in the kingdom of the world. And we also confess that all too often it's very easy for us to choose not to love. And so, Father, we need your help, we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need your strength to help us discern, to help us grow in our ability to love you and to love other people. I pray now as we reflect uh, on your word and as we get ready to take communion and to worship God that you would grow our hearts, grow our capacity to love. May we remember that we are heart, soul, and mind. We are a whole being. We cannot have one posture towards you and another towards people. And so if there's uh, some dimension of that that is broken this morning, God, we ask for healing in that place that we might be in right relationship with you and with each other. And then, Father, give us boldness as we wrestle with these questions. What does love look like? What does resurrection look like? There may be some really difficult uh, conversations or steps that we need to take to be more in alignment there. So would you give us the courage to take those steps? We pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our gathering the way we do every Sunday. This is the highlight of our gathering for us, this moment that's called communion, where we take these very simple elements of bread and juice.